thanks for joining us on this uh, Mother's Day 2023. So glad you've tuned in. And if this is your first time, we certainly hope it's not your last time. We invite you to click on the digital connection card up here in the corner or maybe leave a comment here in the chat about who you are and maybe your email address. And we'd be delighted to uh, send you some information. We'd also love to pray with you if there's something you'd like to share or if there's a question you might have. But again, we're grateful you found time. And if this is your spiritual home, we say welcome to you and again are grateful that you are here with us. I had the privilege this week of leading the Wednesday morning Bible study on mornings with Mark and Gabe on Heartfelt Radio. And there's a link here to the video and also the audio from that first uh, part, which there's actually going to be a second part that will be this next Wednesday. We're looking at the story of Lazarus and looking at the idea of death and life and looking at what we learn from Jesus as he brings a perspective to help us when maybe life is complicated for us, when we're waiting on God to show up and not quite sure what to do, and how the power of the story of Mary and Martha and Lazarus and all that we can learn from that. And so we also want to celebrate our moms today and want to say again, Happy Mother's Day. Today is Mother's Day, and we want to acknowledge all the women we're blessed to know we rejoice over you, for your strength, your wisdom, your strong love, and your beautiful faith. Whether today is a celebration for you or a day of quiet reflection and healing, we're thinking of all of you. If you gave birth this year to your first child, our joy overflows and we celebrate with you. If you adopted a child this year or became a foster parent, we rejoice with you and we want to honor you in your commitment to changing the lives of children. If you continue to struggle with infertility, we are hoping with you and holding your hand in prayer. If you are exhausted and feeling underappreciated for all you do for a house full of kids, we applaud you, we love you, and we appreciate you more than you can ever imagine. And if you lost a child this year to death or miscarriage, we weep and mourn with you. And if your child is lost to addiction or to the world, we hurt with you. And we join you in putting our hope in the one who brings prodigals home. If you live with painful memories of your mom, we pray that you will find in a spiritual mother all that you never had from a birth mom. And if you're one of those amazing spiritual moms, we thank you for stepping up and being there when others couldn't. If you're experiencing an empty nest for the first time this year, we walk with you in this new season and are excited about the next chapter God has planned for you. If you're single, we celebrate your strength, beauty, and individuality and join with you in praying for the desires of your heart. If you're a single mom and wonder if you have the physical energy and financial resources to raise and provide for your child or children, we want to help you, and we will. And if you're pregnant for the first time, we prayerfully anticipate with you the joyful birth of a healthy child. And to all the special women on this Mother's Day, rest and delight in knowing that we are thankful for you, and we celebrate each and every one of you. 
on Mother's Day, I think it makes sense to look at a strong woman from Scripture. I want to look at one person in particular that stands out in the Old Testament, and that's the person of Esther. Let me begin first with a question. What does it take to be a hero? Well, today, it, it seems as though it's, it's all about being a superhero, all right, Iron Man or Black Panther or uh, Wonder Woman. or There's a whole list of names that we could run through. And I wonder who your favorite hero is. In fact, if you would, uh, list it here in the chat. Here's the thing. I think we all get that heroes in the real world don't wear capes or have special powered suits. Although our moms come close, right? We're going to spend the next three weeks looking at a Jewish hero who is celebrated every year with a festival. It's the Festival of Purim. It actually happens to this very day. She is one of my favorite heroes in the Bible. I even have a, a model here that I've kept on my shelf uh, from my days in youth ministry of uh, the woman Esther. She uh, lived around 2,400 years ago, and she lived during a time when the Jewish people were under the rule of the Persian Empire. The book of Esther opens with the Persian king, King Xerxes, throwing a six-month party to show off his wealth and to celebrate his kingship. And then once that party was over, he then threw another party, a sort of an after party that was a week long. He even sent out an edict at that point declaring that no one could be cut off from alcohol. Wow, this was an incredible, crazy time, I'm sure. And as we look at this story, let's look at uh, Esther chapter 1, beginning with verse 10. It says, on the seventh day of the feast, when King Xerxes was in high spirits because of the wine, which basically means it's biblical language for the fact that he was drunk, drunk out of his mind. It continues and says, he told the seven eunuchs, do you know what a eunuch is? I'll try to be delicate with this, but basically it's a male servant that's been neutered. Now, back then, the reason they did it was because there were a lot of male servants in the palace and they didn't want to be any issues between the servants and the female staff or even the queen itself. So continuing in scripture, it says, He told the seven eunuchs who attended him, Mehuman, Bistha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abigtha, Zestar, and Carcass, said to bring Queen Vashti to him with the royal crown on her head. He wanted the nobles and all the other men to gaze on her beauty, for she was a very beautiful woman. But when they conveyed the king's order to Queen Vashti, she refused to come. This made the king furious, and he burned with anger. Now, when we think about kings and queens, we tend to be romantic about them. In fact, as we read about the kings and queens, even as we just saw the coronation of the king of England uh, last week, we can be fascinated by them as just the culture that's around them. But in this particular case, there wasn't anything romantic about this. The women at the time didn't have the status that men did. They were essentially property of their husbands, even if they were a queen. In this moment with King Xerxes, he was livid, basically, that his property was disobeying him in front of everyone. So Queen Vashti, she knew she was taking a big risk to refuse him. Why did she do it? And there's a few possible reasons we could outline. The biggest one was this, that in rabbinic tradition, it says that when she was supposed to come with her crown on, what that literally meant was she was supposed to come with nothing else on but her crown. So the king could parade her in front of all his friends. 
As we continue with this story, as we think about the king, it doesn't take much to think about the fact that he was disgusting and that he had no respect for women. And yet he's not done in the story here because he takes and turns to his top advisors who are pretty drunk also and says, verse 15 here, what must be done to Queen Vashti, the king demanded. What penalty does the law provide for a queen who refuses to obey the king's orders properly sent through his eunuchs? Continuing in verse 16, Memekin answered the king and his nobles, Queen Vashti has wronged not only the king, but also every noble and citizen throughout your empire. Women everywhere will begin to despise their husbands when they learn that the Queen Vashti has refused to appear before the king. Before this day is out, the wives of all the king's nobles throughout Persia and Media will hear what the queen did and will start treating their husbands the same way. There will be no end to their contempt and anger. Or maybe read it this way, Your Majesty, all our wives are going to start thinking they aren't property if you don't do something. Women everywhere might start thinking they can think for themselves. Good grief. So basically, all these guys, too, were disgusting. Continuing here in chapter 1, verse 19, So if it please the king, we suggest that you issue a written decree, a law of the Persians and Medes, that cannot be revoked. It should order that Queen Vashti be forever banished from the presence of King Xerxes, and that the king should choose another queen more worthy than she. When this decree is published throughout the king's vast empire, husbands everywhere, whatever their rank, will receive proper respect from their wives. Wow, this is kind of crazy, but guess what? The king thinks this was a great plan, and so he goes through with it. A real class dude here, right? We have no idea what happened to Queen Vashti, but I'm going to guess it probably wasn't very good because we just know that the world wasn't a, a very safe place back then, especially for a single woman. Now, let's continue because the king gets sobered up a bit, and yet he's a bit bummed out about not having his queen. Granted, he probably had other wives that he could have reached out to, but he didn't have a queen. So his people said to him, continuing in chapter 2, verse 2, let us search the empire to find beautiful young virgins for the king. What they went on to say essentially is whichever one you enjoy the most can become the new queen. Again, there's a couple things going on here. First, they believed a king could only marry a virgin. Second, by enjoy, they meant to sleep with. And third, these young virgins were young. They were probably around 14 years of age, which is just another horrifying fact about the culture at the time. And it's made even worse by the knowledge that King Xerxes himself was close to 40 years of age when he started going through the kingdom and collecting these young women. One uh, commentary says that the parents most likely sought to hide their daughters from the what they called the lecherous monarch. No kidding. So then we get introduced here to our hero. Uh, this is partway through chapter 2, beginning in verse 5. It says, At that time there was a Jewish man in the fortress of Susa, whose name was Mordecai, son of Jer. He was from the tribe of Benjamin and was a descendant of Kish and Shemai. His family had been among those who, with King Jehoiachin of Judah, had been exiled from Jerusalem to Babylon by King Nebuchadnezzar. This man had a very beautiful and lovely cousin, Hadashai, who was also called Esther. And when her father and mother died, Mordecai adopted her into his family and raised her as his own daughter. And so what that means is that Esther was an orphan. She had lost her freedom to the Persians, 
and then she had lost her parents to death, and now she was about to lose any say in her future. So beginning again here in chapter 2, verse 8, As a result of the king's decree, Esther, along with many other young women, was brought to the king's harem at the fortress of Susa and placed in Haggai's care. Now, sometimes people compare this thing that the king was doing to the TV show called The Bachelor, right? That it's something that these young ladies were happily uh, wanting to be a part of, to try to become the queen. Now, we need to make sure that we understand this in a very clear way because we're trying to interpret a culture that we understand currently back then. But really what was going on here, uh, it wasn't reality TV. It was human trafficking. These young women were collected against their will. Had Esther tried to say no, the punishment for her and for her uncle would probably have been death. Continuing here in verse 9 of chapter 2, Haggai was very impressed with Esther and treated her kindly. He quickly ordered a special menu for her and provided her with beauty treatments. He also assigned her seven maids, specially chosen from the king's palace, and he moved her and her maids into the best place in the harem. There was something about this young woman, Esther, that stood out to this individual called Haggai. We have to be careful, though, when we read this book that we don't just reduce Esther to someone who just simply looked good. We're going to see here as we look at her and hear her story that she was beyond just beautiful. She was also wise and smart. She was creative and she was incredibly brave too. And that her character, who she was, was impressive. Essentially, Haggai oversaw getting these girls ready for the king. They would spend six months going through Persian beauty treatments and then be sent spend the night with him, basically a different girl each night. Continue here in chapter 2, verse 14. That evening, she, the girl, was taken to the king's private rooms, and the next morning she was brought to the second harem where the king's wives lived. There she would be under the care of Shazgaz, the king's eunuch, in charge of the concubines. She would never go to the king again unless he had especially enjoyed her and requested her by name. The second harem, and what that meant basically, is once the king had taken advantage of the young woman, he would lose interest, and he would move on to the next girl. The second harem is where those girls would go and spend the rest of their lives, where they'd be taken care of, but in their culture, they would be viewed as unmarriable to anyone else. It was a terrible, tragic end of the line for each of them. What's important is that God has never viewed women this way. There's names that you may have heard, the name Tamar, Ruth, Rahab, Bathsheba, each of them had stories just like Esther. But what's beautiful here is that in God's eyes, they're wrapped into the story of Jesus. And when you read the genealogy in Matthew chapter 1, we find these names there. And so we need to see that in God's eyes, each of these young women had incredible value and worth and that they were his precious children. So as we continue... A couple of verses later, Esther is the one that gets called to the king here in verse 16 of chapter 2. Esther was taken to King Xerxes at the royal palace in early winter of the seventh year of his reign. And the king loved Esther more than any of the other young women. He was so delighted with her that he set the royal crown on her head and declared her queen instead of Vashti. To celebrate the occasion, he gave a great banquet in Esther's honor, for all his nobles and officials, declaring a public holiday for the provinces and giving generous gifts to everyone. And what's interesting here, in, in a normal circumstance, if there is such a thing, right, 
becoming the queen would be the happy ever after moment, right? I mean, that's just what would be expected. Well, not this time. What we're going to see here in the story, because one of the things that we learn with the book of Esther is that it's, it's a masterfully written book. The author of the book is a storyteller. And like every good story, there's three stages we're going to see. There's the setup, there's the confrontation, and then there's the resolution. Now, this is only the first part. So all of this was the setup for Esther's hero moment. So let's get practical for a moment. What can we learn from Esther's story? I'm reminded of a moment from another story in the Old Testament of Joseph. He was sold into slavery. He was put into a prison. But ultimately, after a period of time, he was given a position of authority that enabled him to save his family. And it's interesting, when he met his brothers, he faces them, these men that sold him into slavery, he says this in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. You intended to harm me, but God intended it all for good. He brought me to this position so I could save the lives of many people. The king, these attendants, none of them cared one whit about Esther's well-being. They intended to use her, to take advantage of her. But what we're going to see here is that they had instead put her in a position so that she could save her people. What I want us to see here, the takeaway this week, in a practical sort of way, is that suffering can be an opportunity for growth. It's one of the reasons why I chose the passage I did for, for the Wednesday morning Bible study on Heartfelt Radio. The idea of looking at the story of Mary and Martha and Lazarus and the waiting that was there in the midst of the suffering that those two women went through, even Lazarus as he died. But yet we know in that story that he is resurrected from the dead. And there's such encouragement that that brings to us and the power of what Jesus does by bringing freedom to the captives and bringing life. When we talk about suffering, we also look at the book of Romans. Because in Romans, Paul describes three things that come from difficult times, all of which we can see and will continue to see in this life of this woman, Esther. In Romans chapter 5, verses 3 and 4, Paul says, We can rejoice, too, when we run into problems and trials, for we know that they help us develop endurance. And endurance develops strength of character, and character strengthens our confident hope of salvation. So let's ask this big question. What is the good that can come from suffering? Well, first, we, according to the scriptures, develop endurance. And quite simply, how do we do that? Well, it's by going through the difficult times. We can choose to depend on God. And as we do that, and we learn to endure, and then, as the scripture tells us, that endurance leads to the developing of a strength of character. I mean, truthfully, I, I know we all have seen someone who has endured difficult times. That's why we're looking at the story of Esther, to give us encouragement. That's why I'm looking at the story of Martha and Mary and even Lazarus. It's their character that becomes incredible to show us how to live our lives. Growing in character is a natural result of depending on God. And then what comes from that? Well, we strengthen our confident hope of salvation. How does suffering strengthen our confident hope of salvation? When we go through hard times and we see God carry us through it, as hard as it may be, seeing God move gives us confidence that he will ultimately save us. Over the years for me, 
Uh, each time I've seen God do something in my life or the lives of those around me, it helps my faith grow. It helps me believe even more that he will deliver on this promise of salvation. So here's what I want to say. Regardless of what your past is, regardless of what others may have done to you or what you have done, the story of Esther shows in powerful ways that God sees incredible value and worth in you and that he has a purpose for you. God can and will give you endurance. He will give you character and he will give you hope. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for these promises and we thank you for the story of Esther. We pray as we look to her life to be a model for us as when life is difficult that we see you and your promises. And so help us live in that truth today and we pray it in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. So for the week ahead, I want to give you three thoughts to ponder, questions to wrestle through, to help focus the takeaway of this particular story of Esther. So first, how would you define endurance? Have you had a time in your life when you depended on God and gained endurance? What happened? How does suffering develop strength of character? Do you know someone who is an example of this? How does suffering strengthen hope of salvation? Have you experienced this? And what happened? <laughs>